episode 236 of Speaking of Mysteries. I'm Nancy Clare, and today I'm talking to P. David Eversole about 99 Miles from L.A., his debut crime fiction novel, which is a SoCal noir if ever there was one. Welcome, David, and thank you for taking the time to join the podcast. And is it okay if I call you David? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, you know what's funny is that as... Uh... I changed my name at a certain point to P. David. My father is Peter David, and I always went by David. But I would go to large classes at UCLA with 250 people, and they would be calling me Peter Ebersole. And I'm like, well, my father's not here. <laughs> so I started with the P, and now it's like a nickname. People who know me better will call me P. David. Um, and uh, But, you know, I answer to it all. Well, maybe by the end of the podcast, I'll call you P. David. Uh, That's we'll get there. <laughs> So before we talk about the book, um, crime fiction writers usually evolve from a previous life. You know, they're journalists, which we discussed before we started the recording, lawyers, cops, and then there are those I unofficially categorize as, but what I really want to do is write a mystery, which are people with high profile, successful careers, you know, judges, former presidents, former first ladies, and successful screenwriters like you. You have an IMDb page that's pretty amazing. So why write a book? Well, I will, the interesting thing about the difference between screenplays and books is that screenplays have an incredible amount of rules. You can only talk about what's on screen. Uh, you may not describe too much. You can't say how somebody said something because an actor will want to interpret it. Uh, so you're you're constantly dealing with rules. The other thing is, is that it's a blueprint. You're not really making something. You're writing something for someone to make something. Uh, it's like you know you you are the you know you're you're a bit of the architect, I would say. So you have a, a large creative hand in what happens, uh, of course. But you aren't the one who actually is finally envisioning it if it is a screenplay. Whereas when you write a book, the book is a book is a book. I mean, it's like it's, it's in front of you. It's a thing. And it's a relationship between you and the reader. So it actually, I was an English major at UCLA. Uh, and it was always my dream to write a book that would be on a bookshelf alphabetized in, you know, E-A-E-B, <laughs> they pull it out off of the shelf. And that was like a great fantasy of mine that for whatever reason kind of never took shape. You can do it in a video store, if we still have them, you could go <laughs> and, you know, and find uh, movies that I've made in that way. And that has been satisfying, but nothing so satisfying truly as writing a book. So you really are in the category of but I what I really wanted to do <laughs> was write a book. Right. And fortunately for readers, you chose uh, crime fiction. So if the title of the book, uh, 99 Miles from LA, sounds like a song, title of a song, that's because it is. It's taken from a song by Hal David and Albert Hammond and sung by everybody from Hammond to Julio Iglesias and Johnny Mathis, who your character says had the, the ultimate version, to Art Garfunkel, which I listened to, and that was troubling. Um, <laughs> the idea of 99 Miles from LA as being a, across some imaginary line, sort of beyond the pale, uh, is a strong one, at least to me. Um, you know, that idea of, of this circle around our city. 
My City. Can you can you talk about the title a bit, you know, where it comes from? Because you do address it in the beginning of the book and it's really kind of fascinating. Well, there are, there are sort of several layers to it, which is that um, the song itself, I discovered going to a Johnny Mathis concert with uh, songstress Donna Lauren, who you may or may not know, but she was very uh, popular in the 50s and 60s and a friend of ours. And she, for her birthday, took us to this Johnny Mathis concert. And I had never heard the song before. And I actually, with my iPhone, recorded it because I just thought it was so beautiful. It's very melancholy. It's very hopeful that something is going to work out. You know that things have gone wrong and you hope that things in the end will come back around full circle and work out. Uh, but there was also something, and I couldn't quite put my finger on it, noir about it, which is that like with noir, where we've sort of lost hope with, uh, you know, with the systems working for us. And so we go, we cross over to the other side of the law. There was something about this song that was saying, uh, you know, yes, I want it to work out, but I don't believe it's going to. And so when I began to put those two ideas together, uh, that's when the characters started kind of leaping out and coming forward for me. And the idea of 99 Miles from LA being Palm Springs, which is where I'm living now, I grew up in LA, uh, and I still consider it my city too. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, Palm Springs was, was a playground for movie stars, the rich, uh, back uh, early in its day. And part of the reason was that for Hollywood, it was just outside of the circle of influence. So you were supposed to stay within a hundred miles of set if they needed you to come back. And so if they came to Palm Springs, they were just on the edge of it, but away from it. And also there were some who said it was on the outside of where people would gossip about you, that it was a, its own little mini Sin City. So you could come to Palm Springs and live your, you know, sort of, wild fantasies and even the gossip columnists who came would take that off that hat and allow you know rock hudson to be rock hudson and allow marilyn monroe to have her tryst with uh john f kennedy which they say is where it happened so there was a there was a freedom to it in this strange little desert oasis and then it's a fantasy town because it's built as though it is this, you know, modernist mecca, uh, you know, completely capable of handling all of this architecture, modernism, and tourism, but it's in the middle of the desert. So you step on the outside of it and you realize it, you know, it's a mirage. It's even Rancho Mirage, right? So uh, when you start thinking of it as the place that you might run to the hive, and get away from the crimes that you have committed, it suddenly starts to become very kind of um, uh, fertile. <laughs> <laughs> For the imagination. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's fitting uh, the story shares a title with a song. Uh, and I should mention that finding titles for books is not easy. So <laughs> kudos on that one. Uh, thank um, you. That the that the story shares a title as a song because one of the trio of main characters, Babe, also known as Frank, um, is a singer, and he's a singer who didn't quite manifest the potential that 
uh, they thought he would have as he, you know, sort of went through high school and college and, and he ends up at UCLA as a, as an adjunct professor, I think, (laughs) which is a professor that doesn't have tenure. (laughs) Or any, uh, you know, kind of quote unquote rights. I mean, they, they hire you cheaply, they fire you easily. Um, and I've done it as a, as a film professor and you, you don't get the relationship with, you don't have an office, <laughs> you, know, you often end up like over in a corner where you can meet students, uh, you know, in a cubicle or something like that. So you, you, uh, you don't even feel like you have a job. Uh, and he, as our story starts, he is a very frustrated adjunct professor. Uh, and I think that he really feels like that the, that any dream and, you know, we do live in America. So any American dream has slipped away from him. And here he is at his age realizing, you know, he really has next to nothing. So why not commit a crime <laughs> when, it gets, when, it, when it, it gets brought in? Well, you know, to paraphrase the publisher's description, which I generally don't do, but this, but you'll, you'll see where I'm going in a sec. Uh, 99 Miles from LA is a hard boiled crime novel about a bisexual love triangle, which I got to say, I like the math illusions there, uh, peppered with double crosses, which at this now, now comes my editor, uh, how I'm going to editorialize it. That's an understatement. So, uh, (laughs) This is an unlikely trio. You've got an unhappy housewife, a music professor, an adjunct music professor, and a Mexican bartender. And they come up with a plot to uh, recover buried treasure. And the buried treasure is cash from an all-cash business, which in this book is the sale of legal marijuana. In the old days, it would have been parking lots. And so here's my part. It's a simple plan. So, you know, like what could go wrong? So could you talk about how the story percolated up in your imagination? You've talked about how the song, hearing the song, Johnny Mathis sing it, inspired sort of the character. Let's talk about where the story came from without spoilers. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting thing. I get asked this about, about film as well. You know, where did it come from or how did you think it up? And oddly enough, I find that stories come out almost on their own. And so you start putting these characters together and before you know it, they're talking to each other and they're coming up with what they have to do next. And, uh, and I feel like I'm kind of channeling and following. So uh, the there were several things that were important to that setup, which is that I really wanted it to be three people who each had dreams, uh, but they were all separate from each other and didn't know each other so that they wouldn't have a backstory with each other. They wouldn't have ongoing lifetime relationships. Their relationships get revealed by, you know, the way that they are with each other. And so the other thing is, is that people ask me often about sort of what I call now autofiction, autobiographical content inside of the story. And, you know, I was an English major at UCLA, but my female main character is the English major and my male main character is the professor. And, you know, the, uh, the bartender 
you know, certainly I've worked in the FBI, the food and beverage industry. And so I know a lot about, uh, you know, that world and those uh, failed dreams and how, and how demoralizing it can be to live in that way. Each of them needed to be willing to commit a crime. And that for me comes from realizing that there's no way to stay on the right side of the law and have any of your dreams come true or have uh, the world work out for you, which returns kind of to the idea of the song where you're saying, I want to be living in this sort of hopeful relationship to my life, but dot, dot, dot. So, uh, so those, were the, those were the ways that those people ended up kind of peppering and, and coming together for me. And of course, the way that the simple plan falls apart is that the wrong people fall in love with each other and then, you know, downward spiral, everything falls apart. So, uh, you know, the, uh, it starts with Babe, Frank, um, and Shelly, the female character, meeting and falling for each other. And she takes him to a bar after, her, after he helps her with euthanizing her beloved Pitbull, and they are kind of, you know, crying over her loss, and we realize that she comes in here all the time, and our bartender, Ramon, is her bartender, and she's been looking for a third, and so that's the way that the, uh, that, that it all comes together. It's interesting what you said about cash, <laughs> because that was my conundrum, where does anybody have cash anymore? Even banks don't have cash. <laughs> you know, you can't go in and rob a bank <laughs> and expect there and to make be it worthwhile. Hundred dollars, right? I was like, how do you have millions? Because the other thing is, when you go back to original noir, if they had ten thousand dollars in the bag, they were happy. But that's not going to change your life. So if you're looking to change your life and you have a partnership of three people. Where are you going to get enough money? So that was how I came up with this idea of the marijuana business and cash. I was out for a dinner with a friend and I asked him, uh, we were just chatting about, you know, I was getting my book started and I was having trouble trying to figure out where they're going to steal cash. And he said, well, the pop business. Which of course <laughs> is precluded from using banks. It's really, really difficult for them. Um, they're legitimate licensed business in the state of California, and they can't use it's banks not, because it's not a federally approved profession. Right. Therefore, you cannot put your money or use a bank, uh, which is FDIC, federally, whatever that means. <laughs> uh, 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 you can't use FDIC banks to, uh, to run your business. So it has, it turned it into the wild, wild west. It turned it into a cash scenario. <laughs> what, when you do that, and, and for so long, it had always been like 100% cash. Now, at least I think they take Venmo and some other kind of forms of, uh, of credit. But, uh, but you couldn't even use a credit card, right? You were, you were always paying cash. So people have even to this day, I think, gotten kind of used to walking into, you know, um, those places with cash. Exactly. And it's, it, uh, you know, as an aside, it is, it is a bit of a marvelous counterpoint to a society that people keep saying is moving more and more away from cash. Um, 
uh, into sort of this crypto world and, and this electronic world. And yet, if you want to get high, at least le- legally or illegally, <laughs> you're going to need cash. Noir knows no geographical boundaries. So certainly, you know, there's a million stories in the naked city and that's New York and there's <clears throat> Montreal, Miami, you know, all of this. But I think it works especially well in Southern California, and and I am not unique in that um, in that mindset. I see you a little bit as um, I see Ninety Nine Miles from LA as one of the noirist novels, if that's a word, I've read in a long time, and it's very much a descendant of Raymond Chandler and Horace McCoy and Margaret Millar, probably with a bit of Dante's Abandoned Hope. All you enter here, throw in for good measure, but was it all that bright sunshine that led to even darker shadows, uh, especially in your scene set in the desert? Was that one of the propellants of this, the way the story was set up, the counterpoints between Los Angeles and the sculpture garden? Well, I think think yes, that there is an idea of kind of a natural brightness, which then sort of like, you know, David Lynch and the way that he starts Blue Velvet, the way that he starts Blue Velvet with a completely perfect manicured lawn and underneath are bugs, of course, right? So we're living a life that looks so perfect, but everybody, of course, has their has their bugs fermenting down underneath the, uh, you know, the surface. And so I think that there is that to it. But the other thing is that, and I think it's part of why 99 Miles from LA and the Hollywood lore fits in so well is that we are we are the boulevard of broken dreams i mean it's the hollywood hollywood and hollywood boulevard and that sort of original idea that you could come here and make it beyond your wildest dreams new york has a certain aspect to it of if you can make it here you can make it anywhere but la has always been the place that holds people's dreams you will come here and be discovered to be a star or to become be Come, you know, a film director uh, that is lauded, etc., and that there is this very shiny uh, dream that is associated with Hollywood that we all know is completely corrupt, locks everybody out, keeps everybody, uh, you know, on the outside and clawing at it, you know, uh, wishing that they could have what it has to offer, but leading these kind of measured out lives in the LA area. And certainly Palm Springs is, it's, you know, is a suburb of it, even though it's so far away. It's only an hour and a half with no traffic, but there's never no traffic. You know, let's talk a little bit about, because it's hard to talk about this story without introducing spoilers. So that's why I'm dancing around it. And I, I want you to- talk Some of them, because I know that they, that they intrigue. You know what I mean? Like if you, like even the idea, some people were like, well, don't tell anybody it's the pop business. But I'm like, well, that happens like in chapter two that we start to find out. So I don't mind some of them. I think they sort of leave people in. Well, <laughs> you know, stop me if I go, but there's that whole sort of honor among thieves, you know, or not, as the case may be. And a plan to kill someone, take their money and split it among themselves is, is a recipe for bad acts or the underpinnings of a novel. And, you know, you talked a little bit about the evolution, but, you know, the, the, 
I want this is sort of more of a craft question than a spoiler question. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like to build these crosses and double crosses? Um, you've got kind of a love triangle is not even the proper uh, geometric <laughs> shape to describe uh, this. And I'm not going to go any further than that. Um, love does complicate things, though. Yes. And, and in fact, in an odd way, the desire not to love is part of what is really complicating everything, I think, as well. well the people who are, who are holding back from allowing themselves to simply love then their lives might be a whole lot happier than, than the way they're trying to machinate their, their situations. But, um, I, and this is true for me in screenwriting as well. What I do is set up very strong agendas for my characters. And I know who they are, and I know what they want, and I know what they would do to get it. And so once you begin to cross them and put them into situations, and uh, jump the story forward towards what I call tent poles. I know my tent poles are things like I know that these two characters have to meet. I know that they have to make a plan and decide that they will commit this crime together. I know that the crime scene has to be written. I know that they have to, uh, you know, try to get on the run. And I know that things have to fall apart. And I know that some people are hiding hidden agendas. And all of those things are things that I know as I get into it and start writing. I don't plot it out before I start. So I start now with these agendas, these tent poles, and I start putting them in scenes with each other. And as I do that, the details reveal themselves. And often what I have to do, because I personally write in rhythm, so I have to start over, I have to go back to the beginning uh, and reread and get myself into the rhythm and get up to the new plot point. And then I go, aha, and off I can go into trying to create what happens next. The book also has uh, something to it that was a great favor to me as a writer, which is that it had different characters in different places at times. And so you know you can only spend so long in this scenario before you have to go to that scenario. Well, once you hop over, to that scenario, there's a new plot that needs to be written for those people. And so knowing their agendas, knowing the tent poles and knowing where I was going, that would help propel me forward. So I would often, it would be um, you know, on a dog walk with my husband and I would be just talking out loud and saying, well, they're gonna go here next and I've gotta figure out what happens when they come back together or maybe they don't come back to, you know, all of those kind of things are what I work out as I go. I know a lot of writers write differently than that. They put up a bunch of cards on the wall and they know their plot points and they know exactly where they're going. But I feel a little bit like my characters, which is that if it happens as I write it, it has a kind of kinetic energy to it. Well, every writer, every writer has a different methodology. And, but you mentioned, you know, walking with your husband and walking the talk. I, I think, I think there's a, a special place in heaven for the spouses of writers who, who have to listen to us, <laughs> you know, talk constantly. He says, and then she says, and he's, uh, okay, yo, that's okay. <laughs> to keep, to keep <laughs> from running screaming. 
<laughs> I changed it. Could you read it? And he's like, mm, okay, you know, yeah, that's better. I think. <laughs> well, I'm very lucky, which is that my husband is is my co-creator and, and uh, on many things that we do together. And so we're used to working together. And in fact, he's writing a book in, in parallel. So I've been uh, doing that role for him on his book. His book is about the film noir queen, Elizabeth Scott. Uh, so they kind of also have a bit of a, uh, a crossover in that, you know, mine's fiction and noir, but his is speaking of kind of, you know, the, uh, the noir films of Elizabeth Scott. So I once attended a panel at a book festival and this panel was specifically on noir. For the life of me, I wish I could remember who said it, but the writer said noir needed redemption. And 99 Miles from LA, as dark as it is, offers at least one character, redemption. It's a bit tricky to talk about without introducing spoilers, so we won't mention who. Hmm. Um, but can you talk about redemption in your novel and the role of redemption? I actually think two characters get redemption um, in, in that one gets it kind of more spiritually uh, and the other one, I think, you know, uh, travels on. So, uh, that, so I think they both kind of do get it. But um, it's interesting because I had a brighter ending as an idea and shared it with a couple of people and they went, no, don't do it. <laughs> no um, happily ever after here. Don't do it. Um, so I think there's something to the idea that it's, that it's kind of dark redemption. There's always, when you watch a film noir, they often cross to the other side of the street into the light, right? That will that will be a kind of, I don't know if you would call it a cliche, but a sort of apt ending to a, you know, to a story where they've gone through so much darkness and it's morning and you know they have their revelation and, and there is light. Um, and I think in writing, because you know, my favorite noir writer is Jim Thompson. And Things fall apart is really, I think, more what happens in the writing of noir. And you don't, uh, uh, when I'm talking about writing, I mean like writing a, a noir book. So I don't think you have the same responsibility to try to leave the, the audience skipping out and feeling like everything's gonna be okay. In fact, I think it's tragedy. And the idea of tragedy is to warn the reader not to go down this path. If you go down this path, you will, potentially lose all of you know these things in your life and so the idea of redemption to me of trying to figure out how to make them learn a lesson or something like that just uh uh didn't feel not i wouldn't say necessary didn't feel right and so uh the 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 tragic melancholic walk away, if you will, I think uh, kind of carries you along with that. Whereas if you sew it up for people, they get to close the book and say, well, that was that. And that's what happened to those people. Uh, and I think that if you that if you give them that, and I, I believe this in film as well, to tell you the truth, if you give them that uh, kind of 
tragic hopefulness, which again goes right back to sort of the end of, uh, of Nine Nine Miles from LA, the song, there is hopefulness, but you don't know if it's going to work out. Uh, then the reader goes carried with it. I agree. I agree. It's, but I think you just, you need to have that tiny little element of hope and that could be called hope or the potential for redemption. Yeah. Well, and there, and that's why I say like, I think one gets it spiritually and one there's a symbol of it that appears uh, uh, for that character. See how genderless I was? There? Yes. <laughs> um, so, I, so I think that there's a, a and and that's an item that comes full circle from the very beginning of the book as well. So I, I think it kind of uh, bookends it. <laughs> as it were. <laughs> so you talked about your, your husband is now writing a book and you're being as supportive as him, of him as he was of you, which is admirable. And so, but I want to ask uh, P. David, uh, what's next for you? No, Are you gonna... <laughs> yes, that's right. Our, Will there be more crime fiction novels? Uh, personally, I think there probably should. Uh, absolutely. And also, there's a real life thing that's happening, again, sort of speaking of auto fiction. And I don't think that this gives too much away in a story about stealing lots of cash. That uh, my one of, one of my characters ends up in Mexico at the end of the story. Where do people go when they steal lots of cash? Mexico. So I don't think it gets too much away. Uh, but we just have sold our Palm Springs house and we bought a place in Mexico. So we're going there. And I was saying, well, oddly enough now, you know, I can write off the new house. It's research. I have to go there to write my next novel. What happens to this poor character ended up in Mexico? And, and what will it be like for that person being, you know, in that world as, you know, as someone who doesn't belong? So, uh, so, so I actually kind of have it set up for myself to go there and start that process. The other thing that's been happening with Todd and I after this long career and, and fun career of making movies is that I really do feel like the independent film business has fallen apart. And it's very hard for us to not only get finance, but to get the movies out there, get people to see them uh, and have anything happen with them. And so every time we come up with a new idea now, and Todd will say, oh, this, you know, that would make a really great movie. I'm like, no, that would make a great book. <laughs> and so we've been writing our ideas down now as like, what's the next book? Brilliant. So we have books from P. David to look forward to and from, uh, and your husband's name. I know it, but I'd like you to say it. Todd Hughes. Todd Hughes. And uh, hopefully I'll get a chance to talk to him. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and you'll like this because, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's real world. It's, uh, he's, he's calling it a, a memoir <laughs> because it's about Elizabeth and him, his story of becoming close friends with her. And she was, you know, the queen of noir. So, um, so yeah, we're going, and it will come out on her hundredth birthday or centennial this year, September 29th. Well, brilliant, brilliant. Thank you again, P. David Eversole, for talking to us about 99 Miles from LA, your very, very dark noir readable novel, which you do not have to be a Southern California resident to enjoy. And I look forward to talking to Todd and then to you from Mexico. 
Super.